frantic crowd watches Auburn defeat Georgia 12-0 by O.B. Keeler. This story is to be printed in the Sunday American, and I am starting to write it in the ticket agent's office at Athens, and I reckon I will finish it on the train for Atlanta, if the train, which is late, ever gets there. And it is going to be a thoroughly insane story for a lot of reasons, mainly because it is about the maddest, wildest, craziest, fightingest, grandest game of football I ever saw, or ever expect to see if I live to be 80, which I certainly won't because this game has taken 20 years and several months off my allotted span of life, whatever that is. Auburn defeated Georgia. The score was 12-0. The game was played Saturday afternoon on Sanford Field. These are short sentences, but I can write shorter ones. I can write longer ones than that first paragraph, too, but I'm not going to do it. Here's the way it was. Here is one of the short sentences. It was a hell of a game. I begged the copy reader to let that little sentence get by. I plead with him, and if he doesn't do it, I will kill him, bright and early, Monday morning, because that is the kind of game it was. There is no other way to say it. I am not going to try a detailed description of that game. There may be experts who are expert enough to do it, but I am not one of them. I thought I knew something about football before that game. I still think I know something about football, but not that kind. The score by innings in plain figures was Auburn 6 in the 1st, 6 in the 4th, 12 to 0. But that doesn't help any. There were about three ordinary sane plays made in the first period. Thompson and Desendorf of Georgia operated a pretty forward pass, netting 15 yards. Georgia was penalized the same distance for holding in the line. Steed of Auburn intercepted another forward pass. These are things that can be told and understood. Then everyone went crazy. Absolutely raving crazy. I was not the first to go crazy. Neither was I the last. But I don't think many bushels of nuts were garnered ahead of me. Crazy? Why, I saw little Mike Donahue galloping along the sidelines while Steed was racing back with the forward pass he had caught and Mike was running with him, stride for stride, and begging, pleading, imploring Steed to come on with it. Come on with it. Come on with it. In a whisper that couldn't have been heard ten feet away, even if several thousand people hadn't been tearing the well-known welcome to shreds and tatters at the same time. I know what Mike was saying by the way he looked. That's how I know. And from then on, the whole business becomes incoherent, like one of those dreams where they are just about to get you, and you jump over barns and fall over cigar boxes and have a hellacious time generally. My watch and one of the timekeepers said it took Auburn eight minutes of playing to make that first touchdown. It may have been eight, or two, or three hours and a quarter. It was just a period of alleged time. Of a sudden, we saw the ball on Georgia's 12-yard line. Big Bedez humped his back like an enraged bobcat and flew into the red and black line like a runaway boxcar. And again, and again. And then there was a dancing and a cavorting on the sidelines, and you could see mouths open to an unbelievable extent. But if any sounds issued therefrom, it made no difference, for all the world was one smear of sound and fury. They say that there were only 400 Auburn Rooters at that game, not counting women and children. Somebody lied. 400 Rooters never made that much riot since Gideon's band cracked open the Midianitish camp and painted the crack a blazing crimson. But everybody was crazy, and maybe the sound was contributed by loyal Georgia throats as well. I was supposed to be neutral, but I'll be hanged if my throat feels like it now. I wonder if I could have been causing any of that riot. 
Anyway, that performance by Mr. Bedez marked the disappearance of the last symptom of sanity possessed by anybody. From then on, the two teams fought and swung and grappled and twisted and projected forward passes and perpetrated blunders. And it may be they scratched and bit chunks out of each other too, but I can't say as to that. They were doing everything else, and I want to read some expert review of that game from a tactical standpoint and find out just how it really happened. No, I don't, either. In the first place, it couldn't be done. In the second place, it would be low-rating that game. It was one great, grim, savage battle under a blazing sky in an amphitheater rimmed with maniacs. That's what it was. If I had to guess at it, I should say Georgia gained the most ground. If I had to guess at it, I should say Paddock showed a vast ability at running a team that was not Auburn's match. If I had to guess at it, I should say that the better team won by about the correct score. And if I had to come right out in the open and hang that victory on one single peg, I should say that Auburn had the punch when the hostile goal line was in sight. Twice the Plainsmen worked the ball, mainly by terrific line busting down to the scoring zone. Twice they put it over. The first time it was Bedez with three headlong plunges. The second time it was Steed with two splendid dives. There was no finesse about Auburn's attack once the line was in smelling distance, like the bloodhound that will not swerve from the track, though wounded to death. When the Plainsmen saw that line ahead, they also saw red. And they went to it. They went to it with a savage instinct that chose the shortest route. They smashed straight for the line, head down, and their drives went home. On the other hand, the red and black had the ball within the fatal zone three times, and each time the Plainsmen held. In the second period, Neville, Powell, and Paddock, in brilliant in runs and line smashes, carried the ball to Auburn's 10-yard line. Three times the heavy Georgia backs gave it all they had. Three times they failed to gain, and a desperate forward pass on the fourth down was incomplete. But the bitterest display of all, that mad game, came in the final quarter after Auburn had driven through its final touchdown, and Kaufman, in the general fury of excitement, had missed a second attempt at goal. Georgia was beaten and desperate. There were five or six minutes left to play. Nobody knew how many exactly. The sidelines were a shifting mass of dancing lunatics. Officials were waving their arms and shouting things to which nobody was paying the least attention. The 22 players were probably the least insane human beings in the enclosure, and they were raving and raging. But instinct, the instinct of the bulldog when he gets his grip, the instinct of the charging bull that carries him straight and true through a red mist, instinct held those 22 men at their work, and Paddock was playing the game with an instinct shot through with brains. Georgia was desperate. Georgia opened up in midfield and forward passes began to fly. Desendorf was doing the flipping and he was flinging them far and low. Prendergast followed the ball with a singular intuition, batted down two of the flyers. Somebody else got another and spoiled its flight and it was fourth down. Desi tried again. And this time the oval shot through into waiting Georgia arms and it was Georgia's ball on Auburn's 15-yard line. Still mixing the plays with rare judgment in the crazy melee, Paddock carried the ball in a brilliant sprint around Auburn's left wing, 14 yards, and was dropped by three frenzied tacklers right at the corner of the field, the ball on Auburn's one-yard line. The stage was set. It was Georgia's big chance, the big chance to score, maybe to open up the way for another touchdown and victory. Georgia's ball on Auburn's one-yard line and the first down. I'm going to leave the ball there for a couple of paragraphs. Coming in with Mike Donahue after the game, I was trying to talk, and Mike was trying to talk, and Jack Beasley was trying to talk, and several others were trying to talk, and none of us was getting loose from anything better than sputtering. 
I keep telling you it was that kind of game, but I got this from Mike. Last Wednesday night, under the arc lights, Scrubs had the ball on Varsity's five-yard line. Half an hour, couldn't get it over. Half hour, I tell you. Now what can you do with a team like that? If Mike was asking me, I didn't know. But I know what Georgia did with the ball on Auburn's one-yard line and four shots at it. Nothing. Neville. Neville. Paddock. Neville, if I sorted them out correctly in that jam of sweating, twisted, fighting figures, flew into that Auburn line with all the fury that can drive flesh and blood into a stone wall, and with exactly the same result, they bounded back. I was supposed to be sitting at a little table dictating to a telegraph operator. I was not. I was within three yards of that mighty tangle, shoving a large blue cop out of the way so I could see better. That's where I was. And I tell you that if only one memory of a football game sticks in my gizzard until the day I come to die, it will be the smash, smash, smash of Auburn hurtling back the Georgia attack so that not one plunge got into the line, let alone through it. The cheerleaders had stilled in Georgia's stands while the red and black made its final attack. There was a strange working silence overall, and I tell you, you could hear the impact of those charging bodies smashing in a solid wall of blue against the plunges of the red and black, and they bounced back. If you want the cold statistics on that battle, you'll have to get them from somebody else, if there are any such things. I can tell you that the madness of Georgia's plays swept Auburn off its feet again and again. Powell and Neville and Paddock starred with a brilliancy undimmed in defeat. They plunged through the big blue line, except in the shadow of the goal. The swing of the Georgia forward passing got into the conservative Auburn beans, and the Plainsmen flipped a few themselves and worked them, too. Not for the sweeping gains of the red and black. Auburn's gains were a dozen yards at most, and they used a pass only to show they had it, apparently. Auburn was content to play a defensive game part of the time. Quite a good deal of the time, in fact. Prendergast kicked on more than one first down, even when he wasn't under his own goal. The fire and dash as well as the versatility of the Athenian attack seemed to surprise the Plainsmen until everybody went raving nuts, and nothing mattered much, save only the grim business in hand. Along with the prevailing insanity, a very pretty spirit reigned in the stands and on the field. When Wynn was laid out, Paddock was among the most active, working over the big tackle around whom the Auburn attack was molded, to a large extent. Despite the fierceness of the play, it was the most savage I've ever seen. There was a little rough work. When a Georgia rooter inadvertently beamed an Auburn fan and chucking a pop bottle out of the stands, the embryonic combat was thundered into good humor by cheers of the rival factions. For each other, and for the victim of the mishap, who rubbed his damaged knob and finally worked up a very respectable smile when the offending Athenian came down to shake hands with him. I reckon I ought to mention some points, too, but I'll be fair with you. I don't recall many, and I'm not sure the ones I do remember really happened that way. I know one beautiful forward pass by Georgia, which Thompson flung nearly to the Auburn goal line from a distance of 40 yards, was caught on the fly by Neville, but another eligible Georgia man had touched the ball in flight, trying to make the catch, and that work of art thereby went for nothing, causing untold sorrow in the stands for it looked like a sure touchdown. I never saw as many forward passes tried or half as many spilled or as many worked for big gains. I never saw a game that produced such a crazy alternation of short, furious line plunges and wide-open end runs and fakes and passes the officials ought to be commended, too. Graham and Williams did wonderful in that hectic melee, and from what I can remember, that phase of the business was amazingly well handled. And what else? 
I don't know. It was blazing hot for one thing, and I thought it must be rough on the combatants until I went crazy and forgot all about the climate. I remember that Athens is a nice town, and S.V. Samford, a great, hospitable, and obliging director of athletics. I remember also, now being swayed about on a seaboard train, that Athens is a strangely situated place in regards time and schedules because it takes you more than three hours to get there from Atlanta and only a little more than an hour to get back. Going by the clocks, there may be a lot of other things I will remember in a few days when things get settled down. Too late for the purposes of this narrative. Just now we are closing in on Atlanta and also on the mail editions. And just now the thing above all others I remember of a mad battle in which there was enough of honor and glory for all, victor and vanquished. In a grapple that will go down in history as the Homeric thing I remember best is the grand battle of Sanford Field. Just now, the moving silence over the western goal line of Sanford Field and the smash, smash, smash into that blue barrier that held and held and held and held and held with a single yard between it and the goal line that had not been crossed in 24 successive games. I think, I am sure, I shall never forget that. <laughs>